You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I just want to invite you to turn to um, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're continuing our study through uh, Sermon on the Mount. We're coming to the end uh, of this series. Um, last couple of weeks we've been looking uh, kind of at the, the meat of chapter 7 and what's going on there. Um, two weeks ago we looked at the golden um, rule. Right, a, a very common passage, something that um, even like the lost world's familiar with. We talked about right that it's not just Christians who are familiar with the golden rule; it's it's people outside the church that would be very familiar with it. And yet, we talked about how um, we know kind of the, the 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 middle part of the golden rule, right? That we should treat others the way that we want to be treated, um, but that there's some key elements there that are oftentimes missing, right? The idea that uh, so, right, which takes us back to the verses prior to that, the so piece being that because God is our source of good, because God gives us all the good that we desire, all the good that we need, uh, we trust him for that. Because we're relying upon his goodness, we can then treat others the way that we want to be treated, and we can keep treating them that way even if they never treat us that same way back, right? Even if they refuse to treat us that way, we keep treating them that way because we're not treating them that way to get something in return, right? The golden rule says that we do this in order to obey the law and the prophets, right? So uh, we learned a lot there a couple weeks ago. Last week we looked at um, the the path, the, the narrow path, verse 13 of chapter 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction, those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so we talked about the exclusivity of Christianity, right? That there's an um, exclusivity to it where Jesus says, few find this path, right? Because it's a hard path. It's a difficult path. And so he doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches here. I mean, he just flat out honestly tells these, these people that are listening to him, hey, to follow me uh, is going to bring difficulty at times. It's going to bring hardship at times. But the other path leads to destruction, right? The gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, right? So we see that by choosing this path, it does lead us uh, to an element of life. And so we talked about how our decision-making has to be different than the world. We don't want to be on the wide path, the popular path. We want to be on a different path. Uh, We saw from an application standpoint last week that this exclusivity, the narrow path, we're prone to make it wider than it should be right, when it comes to our loved ones. We want to think the best of our loved ones, those that we particularly doubt their salvation about, and so we try to make it wider sometimes. And so I challenged you last week from an application standpoint, you don't want to have conversations about a loved one and whether they were saved or not saved at a funeral, right? Like that's not the time to have those conversations. We can have those conversations now. We can get assurance of someone's salvation now by being proactive with those communications. So I, I challenged you last week to think through people in your life that you may want to be specific with in regards to having conversations now so that you can uh, understand their salvation before they're not on this earth any longer. And then I challenged you last week with uh, what's guiding your decision-making. Who are the people that you want your life to be most like as we think about being on this narrow path? All right, that brings us now to... Uh, chapter 7, verse 15. We've seen this road to destruction, and now Jesus is going to introduce us to teachers of destruction and how we can be aware of them and how we can be on guard against them. It says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, 
but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This passage talks about false teachers, those who are proclaiming false things or uh, bearing bad fruit in their teaching. And then it also talks about false proclaimers or false professors, those who claim to be Christians who aren't truly Christians um, and are, in fact, workers of lawlessness is how Jesus describes it. So we're going to jump into the text today and kind of see our summary sentence is, genuine believers remain on the narrow path by identifying the right teachers to listen to and by focusing on the right commands to obey. Genuine believers remain on the narrow path by identifying the right teachers to listen to and by focusing on the right commands to obey. For our kids, godly teachers can help us obey the commands of God. We see both things going on here in our text today, a focus on false teachers, but then also attention being given to the commands that we are called to obey, commands that ultimately show evidence or fruit of our salvation. Passage begins with a discussion about false prophets. These are individuals who are described as wolves in sheep's clothing, people who produce bad fruit. These individuals make that wide path that we talked about last week feel more appropriate, right? When when you feel like someone is teaching and proclaiming authoritatively certain things that resonate with you, like you feel validated in those things, right? So if a false teacher comes on the scene and is teaching things that align with the wide path, leading people onto that wide path, it becomes far more deceptive. We talked about the attractiveness of the wide path last week. Add to that a false teacher who is pushing people in that direction, it becomes all the more validated in somebody's mind. And so we have to be very on guard against false prophets, false teachers who would come making that wide path seem more appropriate or more attractive. What we're seeing from Jesus is once we've chosen the right path, we need to choose the right people to follow to help ensure we become the right people ourselves. That's kind of the flow of the text from last week into this week. Choose the right path. You can either choose the wide path or the narrow path. The narrow path is the one that leads to life. Once you are on that path, how do you continue on that path, right? We talked about the the illustration of Pilgrim's Progress last week, right? Once Christian enters through that narrow gate, He is now on a path, the right path, but it's important that he listens to the right people while on that path, right? Because we talked about those deceptors who would come in and try to deviate him from the path. So it's important that we have the right teachers in front of us to follow and listen to so that we can become the right people ourselves. If you think back to the history of Israel, obviously they had issues with other nations, right? The Amalekites, the Philistines, uh, but some of their greatest threats weren't from the outside, but really lied within themselves, these false teachers that would spring up amongst Israel. 
Think about the book of Jeremiah. As Jeremiah comes on the scene and begins warning Israel about their sin and coming judgment, false prophets rose up and told Israel something completely different. Hey, don't listen to Jeremiah. We don't follow a God who acts like that. Right? Not all too uncommon from what we may hear today. Right? When pastors and teachers proclaim judgment and hell and sin and consequences, there are others who spring up to say, hey, that's not how God is. God doesn't judge. God doesn't hate. God loves. God forgives. Uh, and, and they proclaim kind of a wide openness to acceptance with God. Right? Um, Israel fell prey to uh, false prophets amongst themselves. Um, and, and so Jesus, kind of keeping with that theme here in the New Testament, warns his followers that they're not going away. These false teachers aren't going away, and we need to be on guard against them. All right, genuine believers, they remain on the narrow path by identifying the right teachers to listen to and by focusing on the right commands to obey. Let's jump in and see these two sections a little bit more in depth today. Number one, in your notes, be intentional about who you listen to. Be intentional about who you listen to. Jesus warns about these false prophets who look like Christians, talk like Christians, and sometimes act like Christians. They're in the sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And this is not the only place that we see false teachers addressed in the New Testament. If you want to flip with me to Matthew chapter 24, verse 23. Later, Jesus continues to warn about these individuals who will come to lead people astray. It says, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. He warns them about these individuals that will come on the scene. In Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, as Paul is getting ready to depart and leave a church behind, he gives them warning as well. Acts chapter 20, verse uh, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He's talking to the leadership here. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, right? So this warning to watch out for these false teachers that are coming. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. You skip down to verse 12 in 2 Corinthians 11. And what what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 22. 
even into 1 John 2, 1 John 4, 2 John, verses 7 through 11. All of these are warnings against these false teachers that are coming. And they come with signs, they come with wonders, they come with works, and we have to be on guard against them. And that's part of the role that the elder plays within the church. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, Listed in the qualifications of of being an elder, it says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. All right, so the church needs individuals who will uh, be, be put into positions of authority where they can claim and teach and proclaim clear instruction, sound doctrine that's consistent Uh, with the trustworthy word that they've been taught, but then also to rebuke those who would come in to contradict it, right? And so they serve as as a security blanket for the rest of the church, a security blanket for that flock to contradict false doctrine that would seek to creep in. What we see back in Matthew chapter 7 is that false teachers are deceptive, right? Verse 15, they, they, they masquerade, they disguise themselves in sheep's clothing, They're inwardly ravenous wolves. They present themselves as sheep. So they're deceptive, but they can be detected. That's the encouraging thing for us today is that they don't have to remain in disguise. We can identify them by their works. We can identify them by their fruit. So we don't have to be overly paranoid that these guys can't be discovered. They can't be figured out. We can can determine their falsehood. They can be detected. And we can take comfort, verses 19 through 20, that they will ultimately be destroyed that their ministry will not endure, that it will not be permitted to linger, right? That they will be cut down, they will be thrown into the fire. You will recognize them by their fruits. So that's the challenge to us this morning, is to examine their fruit. Because looks can be deceiving. We're challenged to examine their fruit, to, to examine what they say, and to examine what they do. Now, in the original context, when Jesus is talking to these people, he, he's, he's telling them about um, this comparison here of are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now, it's interesting, one commentator pointed out that the thorn bushes of that time had berries that from a distance could be mistaken for grapes until you came upon the plant and thoroughly examined it and realized, no, this isn't grapes. These are berries of a thorn bush. Same with the thistles. They had flowers that could look like figs, until you further examine them, until you got a little bit closer and realized, no, this is, this is a thistle bush, not a fig tree, not a fig bush, right? So the illustration here is that, again, the, 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 the sheep in, uh, or the wolf in sheep closing, right? Like it looks like a sheep until you further examine it and realize that, hey, there's a zipper there. It's not, it's not, really, it's not really sheep skin, right? He's got a sheep cloak on, right? It's not, a, it's not a grape. It's not a fig. It's a thorn. It's a thistle. Right? And so he says to, to, clo- to, to give a more closer examination to determine who these people are. So I'm going to give you two points here about how to be intentional about who you listen to. Because here's the thing. While you get to, to, to come and listen to me, right, teach regularly on a Sunday or, or one of our other elders teach regularly on a Sunday, we live in a day and age where you have so many resources available to you and should take advantage of those resources, right? Your spiritual growth shouldn't be limited to what you hear from, from me or the eldership here at our church teach you, right? I, th- I believe God has blessed us and gifted us in, in ways that other Christians haven't had access to 
the amount of resources and books and podcasts and sermons and articles, right? Like these things are available and it can speed up our growth, right? You don't have to wait till next Sunday to hear another sermon from your pastor. You can hear sermons all throughout the week from godly teachers who can grow you and strengthen your faith. But how do we sift through? How do we know who to listen to, who not to listen to, right? How do we know who to listen to and who not to listen to from a spiritual health standpoint, right? We can certainly get into who do I prefer, right? Who's a better speaker than me? Who, uh, who um, whets my curiosity and, and satisfies my appetite better than, than somebody else? But what we really have to be on guard against are those who would damage our faith, those who would lead us astray. How do we know the difference, right? Number one, teachers and mentors should be evaluated on doctrine, right? And so this isn't just simply, how do I know good pastor from bad pastor? This is really, how do I know good mentor from bad mentor, right? Because we all have situations where there are other people that we look to to help grow and strengthen our faith. And we need to make sure that we're listening to the right people, right? We've chosen the narrow path. We need to make sure that we're listening to people who proclaim the narrow path as well. Teachers and mentors should be evaluated on doctrine. These false teachers, they do not advocate for the narrow way that was highlighted by Jesus. They don't tell the whole truth, thus making their message false. They do not remain faithful to the Bible. Now, this is why expository preaching is so helpful. What we do here at, at Sovereign Hope to work through books of the Bible, verse by verse, to understand the, the, the meaning of a text in context, right? It guards, it guards me or any of our other elders from pursuing a man-centered agenda for what we want to share with you guys on a Sunday, right? Like, I don't have to tell you what, I, I don't have to figure out what I'm teaching next week. I know what I'm teaching next week. I'm teaching the next verses in Matthew chapter 7. And when I come across difficult text, it forces me to, to grapple with difficult text, right? I don't get to skip that. I don't get to gloss over that. I don't get to go to a different section that's easier, right? It protects us from only presenting certain portions of Scripture. It's why we also try to faithfully bounce from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? Because I don't want to just give you a certain aspect of Scripture and frame uh, a belief system up that's, that's centered on a few passages in Scripture. I want to give you the whole counsel of God, right? So we go to the Old Testament. We go to the New Testament. We go to difficult passages, right? Because we want you to see it and understand who God is throughout the 66 books. False teachers don't remain faithful to the Bible. The doctrinal test that we can examine when evaluating an individual is, does their teaching align with the gospel that salvation is by grace through faith alone. A bad gospel is some version of a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. All right, a bad gospel is a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. Right, as we evaluate teachers and mentors, those that we would follow on this narrow path, we need to make sure that they align correctly with the gospel as presented in God's word. Some key doctrinal errors to avoid. Uh, one commentator labeled this, and I thought it was super helpful, the dangerous mathematics of false teachers. Right, The dangerous mathematics of false teachers. Do they add to the Bible? Do they subtract from the person and work of Jesus Christ, because this is what cults do, right? Cults add to the Bible. They have the Bible, 
Then they have this other stuff that goes along with the Bible, right? This extra revelation, this extra information. Do they subtract from the person and work of Christ, right? You can figure out real quickly where somebody is by simply asking them to talk about Jesus to you. Who is he? Who do you say that he is, right? Do they multiply the requirements of salvation and faithful living, right? Do they add to what we're supposed to be doing? Do they bring a legalistic mindset to Christianity? Do they multiply the requirements? Do they divide the people of God with a divisive and destructive spirit, right? The apostles warned against this in their letters about people who would spring up and bring division within the church, how you're to have nothing to do with those individuals, right? You, you confront them, you rebuke them. If they continue with it, you remove them, right? We don't, we don't tolerate division and destructive spirits within the local church. These are, these are good, helpful points to think through when evaluating whether somebody's a false teacher or not. Do they add to the Bible? Do they subtract from Christ? Do they multiply the requirements of salvation and faithful living? Do they divide the people of God with a divisive and a destructive spirit? So we evaluate teachers and mentors by doctrine. Number two, we evaluate them on behavior. We evaluate them on behavior. Now this one sometimes takes a little bit longer to manifest itself. Or you can sit down and ask somebody about their doctrine and oftentimes get right to the point and figure out where they stand on certain things. The behavior piece sometimes takes a little bit longer to evaluate, right? Evaluating them on their behavior, evaluating them on their fruit, the practical test. Are they antinomians on the one hand or legalists? On the other, antinomians was a group of people who uh, were very free-spirited in their understanding of the gospel and the grace that comes from God, right? So this was a group of people at that time who were populating a false teaching that basically you can get saved and then live and do whatever you want, and it's okay because you've been forgiven for it, right? And so it was very loosey-goosey as far as get saved, make a profession, live however you want to. Right? So you've, you've solidified your eternity, now enjoy it all you want to here on earth before Jesus comes back. Right? Then you've got the legalist standpoint that says, hey, forgiveness from Jesus isn't enough. You've got to do this, 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 and this, or else you're not okay. Some of us came from environments like that. Some of us have grown up in environments like that where there was a legalistic mindset added to the gospel. Right? And so thinking through the behavior, the character of a teacher or a mentor, some key character traits to look for. When I think of recently, uh, some of the elders were having a conversation with a church member about uh, who we believe to be kind of the, the forefront um, false teachers right now, right? Like who are, the, who are the big ones that we need to look out for? Who are the big ones that we shouldn't be listening to? Who are the ones that we should avoid, right? I think all those that we kind of listed off in some of the discussion we were having fail in what I'm about to share with you from a character standpoint, right? At least in one of these areas, they fail in in being um, a a proper example of these uh, character traits, right? Humility. Are they hungry for power? Purity. Are they hungry for pleasure? Generosity. Are they hungry for money? These are sure signs from a behavior standpoint, whether or not we're dealing with a false teacher, a false prophet, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Is it an individual who is using the gospel for power 
Is it an individual who is seeking to please themselves, right? And this, these, are, these are popular areas how pastors get fired, right? Like pastors today get fired for falling in one of these three categories, right? Uh, I, there are pastors that I followed, books that I've read, who were fired because of the power that they desired, right? A lack of humility, a desire for power, uh, arrogance and, and pride that was ultimately their downfall. Obviously, we know of, of individuals who have fallen from a purity standpoint. It's not uncommon to hear about uh, teachers and mentors who fall from a, a desire for money too, indiscretion with finances, right? These are, in, these are areas that we want to see teachers and mentors exhibit high character in, right? Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruit. Are they demonstrating a mindset of humility, a mindset of purity, a mindset of generosity, Do you see them leading with humility? Do you see them giving their money away, meeting needs for those that have needs? Do you see them taking protective measures to guard themselves, particularly when it comes to the area of purity with their marriage even, right? We talked in Matthew chapter five about the the, um, desires that Jesus has for us to stay committed in our relationships, right? To have a high perspective on what um, adultery even is, right? To not just characterize it by an act, but to even see it as a heart mindset, right? A, a heart issue. So character traits to look for in a, in a godly teacher, a godly mentor, humility, purity, and generosity. Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. They may show up looking like a sheep. You'll see that they're a wolf if you examine them. They may look like grapes, they may look like figs, but closer examination will show them to be thorn bushes and thistles. They may look like a good tree, but closer examination of the fruit will show them to be a bad tree because they are producing bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So, local church context. We just saw the dangers of false teachers, right? So we have to be really on guard with how we handle who's here within our church, those that are preaching, those that are teaching, those that come to join our church even, right? Because several of these passages say what? They're going to come up from within you, right? Sure, we've got to worry about the preachers and the authors and and the books and the sermons that are being populated outside of our church, but there's also a danger of people rising up within the church, It's why we have a long membership process here, honestly, right? We want you as a visitor to fully know who we are as a church and not be surprised by anything. But here's a little secret. We want to know you too, right? We want to know you too, and I hope you would be comforted by that because once you're a member here, to know that nobody else is getting in either without a full examination, right? This is our flock. This is our flock, and Jesus tells me to look out for wolves, and he tells me as an elder, I've got to make sure that my flock is safe, Right? So the implication here is that preachers, authors, and church visitors who seek membership need to be assessed thoroughly for dangerous falsehood. Right? I can't have individuals come into our church and have side conversations that are divisive or, or doctrinally unsound that would lead a, a young believer away. Right? And I don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. They look like sheep. Right? Like, I don't know if it's a wolf. I've got I to gotta examine it and see, like, sheep or wolf. Right? I believe God has protected us so much over the years and has regularly brought us sheep, right? Sheep to join our church, sheep to help us thrive as a church plant that is now moving into year 10 of being here. But my encouragement to you would be to examine the preachers you listen to, to examine the authors that you're reading, 
But even as a church member, to be a part of that examination process, to get to know people that visit our church, to welcome them with open arms, but to welcome them intentionally, right? To welcome them intentionally, to get to know them, to know their doctrine, to know their behavior, to know who they are, right? We move from false teachers now to false professors. Number two, be known for your humble obedience. Be known for your humble obedience. He says, you'll recognize these false teachers by the fruits. Then he says, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, obviously confessing Jesus as Lord is an important part of being saved, right? So Jesus isn't downplaying this confession of Lord, Lord, right? Look what he says in, uh, or what Paul says in Romans 10, 9, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you can be saved, right? So uh, obviously confessing Jesus as Lord is super important. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says there's coming a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The challenge, though, is that we can profess him and have it be unauthentic. There's going to be many who say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, I never knew you. So despite their verbiage, despite their prophecies, despite their exorcisms, despite their miracles, Jesus identifies them as workers of lawlessness or lawbreakers at the core. The test of a true profession, then, he says, is a transformed and obedient life. Right? He says, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's who will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a person who does the will of the Father. We give evidence for whether we truly know him and whether he truly knows us by our obedience or lack thereof. Now, we know the gospel teaches us that no man enters heaven because of his obedience, but the gospel also says no man enters heaven who isn't obedient, right? So our obedience doesn't get us there, but nobody's getting there who isn't also obedient. But we're not basing our salvation on our obedience. But once we come to Christ and we are saved, that new work that begins in us through the Holy Spirit leads us to be obedient to him, right? He says, you'll know, you know you're going to heaven, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's those who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone's getting in. Not everyone's on that narrow path. Many are on the wide path. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's the one who is getting in. Many will think they're in because they will think they have been obedient. Now, for years, this passage has really confused me, but also concerned me because I feel like it kind of contradicts itself in, in ways that it's been presented to me before. So you read it and it says what? A lot of people are going to say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus is going to say, I don't know who you are, right? So you, you, could, you could leave this passage saying, okay, there's a lot of people who give lip service, but Jesus says it's those who are obedient who get into heaven, right? I'm good with that. Like that makes sense to me. Like it's not about lip service, heart, action, right? Like we need to be obedient. That's, that's evidence of our salvation. But then he follows it up with and says, there's a bunch of people who are going to have action and still aren't getting in. And then you're just like, oh man, well, how do I know? Right? Because I've heard some pastors that'll take this and make it more relevant for us today. And it'll kind of say, you know, like, 
uh, there'll be people who were Sunday school teachers, who were deacons, who were pastors, who were elders, who were missionaries. And they'll start listing off like all of these things. And they'll say, and they're going to get to heaven one day. And God's going to say, I don't know who you are. Right. And so it's like, well, goodness, like, I don't, I don't know. How do I read passages like in first John that say, you'll know you're saved, right? As you begin to look at your life and look at your fruit and you see the obedience, if I can't really even count on that being true obedience, because these guys seem to have works, not just the lip service, but works. And Jesus says, I don't know you, all right? So I'm wrestling with this yesterday, um, studying it, trying to process it, trying to figure out, like, what does this mean? Um, And sitting in a deer stand last night, and which has been a great, which is always a great place for me to just process through uh, sermons. So I began to type out some thoughts, right? And I said, Matthew 7, 21 to 23 is a little confusing, and it's capable of being very scary and unassuring. At face value, it seems to say lip service doesn't show you're a Christian. Works and actions and fruit do. But then it goes on to say there will be people who did actions that still get left out. So how do you even really know if you were in or not? I've heard pastors say there will be people who went to church, served as a deacon, taught Sunday school, that will be told Jesus never knew them. The problem is that pastors start down this road and really blur the lines of what people will say they did for Jesus, but it wasn't real fruit as they keep adding to the list. I mean, how far do you take it? The key seems to be in the obedient piece. Fruit is discussed in John chapter 15 too. You'll remember John chapter 15 is where we were a year ago at this time. We were talking about Jesus being the true vine, right? And us being the branches and we produce good fruit when we're abiding in him, right? Right? Fruit's discussed in John 15 too, and Jesus talks about fruitful and unfruitful branches and ties the fruit to obedience. I'm thinking there's something to be said for what Jesus identifies as the Lord, Lord actions that fall short. Prophesying, exorcisms, miracles, these are all things that seem to validate teachers and pastors in the eyes of the world and are also things that some Christians long to be able to do, but there aren't really commands given to us to do these things. Nobody can go to a text and build a good step-by-step case for how to cast a demon out or work a miracle. Maybe we make a mistake by trying to add to this list and confuse what is being said. There will be some who did showy things like the list mentioned, and they will find out Jesus never knew them. But don't stress too much that you are the missionary or the adopter of orphans or the feeder of the hungry that Jesus doesn't know, because Matthew 25 seems to indicate that obedient acts like these are pretty good evidence that you're in Christ. Yes, there will be a Sunday school teacher who ends up being surprised they were never saved, but I don't know if that is the main idea here. Right, so I really want us to focus in as we get ready to wrap up. What are the specific acts that Jesus says people will claim to have done and be told, I never knew you? Right, we can certainly add to that list. Like I said, there will be a Sunday school teacher who gets to heaven one day and finds out that he never truly had a relationship with Jesus. But I think Jesus really wants us to dial in here to what he identifies as these acts that these false professors are claiming. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not do mighty works in your name? Number one, our salvation should be evidenced by whose commands we obey. These charismatic credentials are not a good measuring stick as to whether one is a Christian or not. Think about what, what aspects of the Spirit are being focused on here. It's the gifts of the Spirit versus the fruits of the Spirit, right? The fruits of the Spirit are clear commands. We have been seeing fruits of the Spirit commanded here uh, even in the Sermon on the Mount, right? 
And we know from passages that we've already read, false teachers can do wonders and signs and be leading people astray with them. Even in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Right? These, 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 these things being done here, the casting out of demons, the wonders, the prophesying, they aren't a good measuring stick for being saved. The focus here seems to be on the unclear commands of Scripture. A good spiritual resume we want to present is what's presented in Matthew 25, right? Lord, when did we feed you when, we were, when you were hungry? When did we visit you in prison, right? When did we take care of you when you were sick? Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me, right? That's where he's dividing the sheep and the goats. That's where he's dividing the saved from the unsaved. And he says, here are the type of things that my followers do, Think about the claims that are being made here, the the prophesying, the exorcisms, the miracles, the wonders. These are claims that many false teachers are known for in their ministries, right? Go back to the list that I could give you of false teachers that are prevalent today. They are known for these type of things, right? Now, that that doesn't discredit or discount um, the, the, the gifts of the Spirit in any way, right? Now, I've told you before, I'm gonna get to heaven and by God's grace, He's going to tell me that I wasn't a false teacher, but that at times I was an incorrect teacher, right? Because I'm not a perfect teacher. I've told you before, there's going to be things that we get to heaven about, and you guys might look at me and say, you were wrong about that, right? I've told you my eschatology may be wrong. I may find out that that I was wrong about some of that. I may find out that I was wrong some about the charismatic gifts, right? Um, What I can tell you confidently is that I have a hard time finding in Scripture, again, clear evidence for how to carry some of these things out and how to live some of these things out. But I'll tell you, I listen to and follow individuals who believe and are very openly practicing charismatic spiritual gifts, right? But I'm going to tell you, you don't hear much about it from them, right? I, I buy commentaries from guys who are in churches who are charismatic in some of their worship, right? It doesn't flesh itself out in this bold and loud way in their writings or their teachings, right? Because it's more of an obscure aspect of Scripture even, right? The, the, the best charismatics are the ones that you don't really know about. You don't really know that they're charismatic. Man, I love our, our head of school at Trinity. He obviously pastors an Assembly of God church, right? Um, what I know most about him has nothing to do with any of these gifts or any of these acts. Man, I know he loves people. I know he serves people. I know he cares about people, right? What these guys are proclaiming on judgment day is, Lord, look at these things that we did, right? And there's not a one of them listed in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Not a one of them is listed here. And so he says, there's going to be people who claim these things and say, aren't we good? And Jesus says, I never knew you. Our salvation should be evidenced by those commands that we obey. Jesus's commands, the ones that are given to us clearly 
in Scripture. Number two, our salvation should be evidenced by whose glory we seek. Not for everyone, but for those who really are strong proponents of some of these things. The exorcisms, the miracles, the prophecies. Oftentimes it results in their glory. And it's certainly true that false believers magnify themselves, not Christ. Their purpose is to exploit people, not to edify them. And Jesus says, there's going to be people who claim these things and they're not getting in because they weren't obedient to me. And that's the key to me here is Jesus is saying, obedience is evidence that you're in the kingdom. Disobedience, lawlessness, even if it comes with works, even if it comes with mighty uh, proclamations, it's not obedience, right? And it doesn't reflect that you're getting into (coughs) the kingdom of God. So the implication for us, be cautious with desiring or aligning with those who are known more for the obscure and showy areas of obedience. Be careful. Don't don't slight yourself or think that you're lesser of a Christian because you're not experiencing these things that maybe somebody else is experiencing that you know. Because on Judgment Day, these things don't seem to carry a whole lot of weight. Right? They're, They're not a true sign of whether you're a believer or not. Instead, I'd go back to that list in Matthew chapter 25 those things that don't really produce a lot of glory, right? Don't produce a lot of recognition, right? Those are the things that you treat others the way that you wish you were treated, right? You treat others who are sick, who are hurting, who are in jail, who are orphaned and widowed. Like, you treat them like you wish you would be treated. That's a sign that we're carrying out the Sermon on the Mount. That's a sign that we're on the narrow path. So from an application standpoint, As we enter into 2021, I told you I wanted to tie this into New Year's resolutions because every year we try to encourage you to set a spiritual plan or a spiritual direction for yourself. And that flows from what we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. Paul says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, right? He says, I'm praying that every resolve for good will be accomplished in your life. Every resolution for good will be accomplished so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he pray for this resolve to be accomplished? So that Jesus can be glorified. So we desire for you to grow spiritually in 2021 so that God can be glorified. So what good fruit will you plan and work to produce obediently this year in 2021? I told you this was the same discussion we were having this time last year, and we had obviously no idea what 2020 held. But back at the end of December, 1st of January, we were teaching through John chapter 15. We were talking about fruit on that day as well. We were talking about branches and good branches and bad branches and what happens to the bad branches and how good branches are pruned so they keep producing fruit, right? It's all about abiding in Jesus. We said abiding in Jesus means we are united to him in such a way that all of our life is now drawn from following him through his word and living out obedience to him by the ways we interact with others in this world. We said that a year ago. That's certainly the same thing that we're saying today a year later, right? That we need to abide in Christ to bear good fruit. Good fruit 
is tied to how we interact with others in this world, treating them the way that we desire to be treated. Being united with Jesus brings life, and spiritual life is revealed by spiritual fruits. So let me encourage you as you think through what this year is going to look like, and you think through uh, the type of person you are now, the type of person you long to become, right? As you're on this narrow path, where are you headed? Who are you listening to, right? Um, And what commands are you going to seek to obey and follow through with this year? We've talked about a ton here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're going to wrap all this up next week and then with an application Sunday the following week, give you some real clear points of application for what to do as we come out of this sermon. But let me encourage you to think through some New Year's resolutions that are tied to this. How are you going to treat others the way that you long to be treated? How are you going to rely on the goodness of God and his presence when you're not being treated the way that you want to be treated? Right? Who are you going to listen to this year? Who are you going to model and pattern your life after this year? Is it going to be a good teacher or false teacher, good mentor, bad mentor? Right? What, what are you going to do in response to what we're hearing from Jesus' sermon? This isn't my sermon. This is Jesus' sermon, right? The Sermon on the Mount. What are we going to do in obedience to him? Your answer to that question reflects your salvation, right? Because your salvation is known and evidenced by your obedience. Let me encourage you to ponder that as we close, to think through what it means to be on the narrow path, what it means to follow Jesus faithfully, what it means to show that evidence of salvation through your obedience and how you treat others. Let's pray together. God, we, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the challenges that it gives to us. And Lord, we're praying that you would produce fruit in our life in response to it. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to carry out the things that we're hearing not for our glory, but for your glory, not to earn our salvation, but in response to our salvation. God, we're so thankful for the gospel. We are so thankful that we are saved by grace through faith because of the work of Jesus Christ. God, we're thankful that you have given us your word to live by. And God, we don't want to add to it or subtract from it. God, I pray by your grace that you would continue to allow truth to be proclaimed from this pulpit, no matter who fills it. And that, God, truth would be proclaimed doctrinally, but then also behaviorally, our people would continue to see uh, growing uh, humility, growing generosity, growing purity from the members of our church, from the leadership of our church. God, I pray that you would continue to bring individuals to our church, sheep who will build us up and and grow us and use their gifts and abilities here. God, I pray that you'd protect us from false teachers, false authors, wolves that would come to try to divide us. God, guard us and protect us from that. We thank you for the protection you've given us over the years. Look forward to what you're going to do with us in 2021. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.